or welcome back to On The Shelf. I am so happy you're here and I am so excited for today's very special episode. I know I say that a lot, but that does not make it any less true. Today, I'm going to be talking to Tisha Marie Reikley Aglieta about her debut novel, uh, Breaking Pattern. I am so excited to get into this book. I think we had a lot of fun doing this interview and yeah, we had a really good time. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Shelf. I am so incredibly excited to talk to today's author, and we have had quite a road of getting us to this interview. <laughs> I got sick, scheduling problems. Life is incredibly chaotic these days, but I have just been really looking forward to this conversation, and I think we're going to have a good time. Um, but first and foremost, welcome, Tisha. Welcome to On the Shelf. I Thank am you. so excited you're here. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and a little bit about Breaking Pattern, your novel, and then we will get started with these questions I have. So I'm a fiction writer and playwright. I was a high school teacher for almost 20 years, and I left to get a PhD in creative writing and literature. Um, USC has a fully funded program. So I decided that since I was a little kid, I always wanted a PhD, even though I didn't really know what that meant or what that looked like or why. Um, but, you know, other little girls dream of getting married and having babies. And me, I wanted more books um, and more books. and. So now I'm a teacher who writes. I'm doing, I did some adjunct work. I'm applying for full-time faculty positions and really trying to use as much time as possible to finish the revision of my next book and applying for residencies and fellowships so that I can work on the book after that. So my goal. How fun, how exciting. Um, I don't know. I can't wait to start getting into the book with you, but why don't you tell our listeners, I guess, a little kind of elevator pitch of sorts of like, what is Breaking Pattern about? We have some questions later on that are like really going to dig deep, especially into kind of the personal connections um, with the story. But I guess just kind of like a surface level elevator pitch. So <clears throat> I always say Breaking Pattern is about a girl who loves horses more than people who competes in junior rodeo in Southern California. And the novel is set in a fictional uh, valley that is in and around the Riverside, California area. So what we refer to as the Inland Empire, um, which is where one of my tias lives. However, I went to high school and competed in junior rodeo further inland, <laughs> excuse me, further inland. Um, I competed in, in junior rodeo when I was a kid. So it's loosely based on some of those experiences. Oh, interesting. how interesting again. I always like in these interviews, I always find myself like ending up with like a catchphrase for the show, which is completely unintentional. Um, I, you know, but um, yeah, so I don't know. I feel like if I end up saying that's interesting a lot, it is completely genuine. I because <laughs> um, it because it really is. Um, and I know we will definitely touch upon um, some of the the rodeo stuff in uh, a little bit later on. Um, but first, I have just a couple of icebreakers so I can get to know you a little bit better and so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. And the first one is, um, 
if you were a plate, what type of plate would you be? And these, this is one of those that is just kind of like, what's your knee-jerk rea- rea- reaction to that question? Well, <laughs> when you say plate, I immediately pictured one covered with food. So I'm a plate of avocado and chunks of pork and tortillas because I could eat that for every meal every day and be perfectly happy. But that plate would probably have to be made of like Corel because it's indestructible, microwavable, dishwasherable, and all of that. So <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that those kind of like two answers in one. Um, because it, I don't know, that one's always just really fun for me to ask because of just however people interpret it. Um, and I've only ever gotten like food as a focal point one other time, so that's oh, very wow. interesting for me to hear. Um, but I love that. So. My other icebreaker is if you had to spend a year in a fictional world, which would you pick and why? That's interesting. Most of my fiction, the fiction I write, at least right now, is very historical. But Mm -hmm. I think if I were picking a place to reside, um, and of course, now I can't think of any that aren't ones I created. How egocentric (laughs) is that? That all I can think of... Um, good question in a fictional world I mean I think it would be I think it would be some time in a future where we weren't faced with as many of the social ills if that mm-hmm. future even exists so maybe what I want is an alternative reality maybe I want al- yeah. an alternative fiction where you know we're not dealing with the kind of racialized and gendered and um, sexual orientation oppressions that we're dealing with now and that we live in a world where people don't try to harm each other and mm-hmm. and or the planet like we're not trying to harm each other or the world around us and we're trying to take care of it better and do better and be better so I don't know, that's not a specific fictional world but I think that's no, the one I... I'd like to <laughs> spend time in if I could I, I absolutely love that, though. And that's definitely kind of the most uh, eloquent answer I've gotten to that question. Um, and I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so kind of beginning our transition into what I called, um, before we were recording, my scaffolding section of like, what happens behind the scenes in the making of a book. The first question I always like to ask is, what is your favorite or least favorite part of the writing process? And has that or does that change from like book to book, project to project, depending on what you're working on? So um, I'm real old school that my, I always start my writing process with pen and paper. I have spiral notebooks in the filing cabinet back there and in storage boxes over there by the door that need to go out to the garage. Um, So I compose everything longhand. And it usually starts with, some conversation that I can't get out of my head or a description of a place that's been nagging at me. Um, So I like that part of the process. I like the process of just getting it all out. Um, And I can't do that on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I started using a computer to, as an editor. So get sitting down on the screen. I don't find I'm able to generate as much. Mm-hmm. Not that I can't, I can type a lot faster now than I can write, I think, but um, there's just something about that physicality of that process. Um, so I would say that has to be my favorite uh, in all the projects I've worked on. 
I'm pretty sure all of them are in some kind of spiral notebook or in scraps of paper, post-its. There's a giant chart paper up there where I thought I would try scribbling big and now it just annoys me. Um, and I would have to say the least favorite part, well, I'm actually getting to like it better as I understand it more. I used to hate revision, not because I thought, oh, I did it perfect the first time. It's just that I tend to have obsessive tendencies. That is, that's very redundant. I have obsessive tendencies and I will focus on like these little things. And even though my plan is to do what we call a macro revision and I'm trying to go through and pull this one particular thread all the way through, I distract myself with all the other things in the store. I'm like, oh, let me fix this. Oh, and I never make the progress that I want to make. So my process is very slow and I, I would like for it to be faster. The one thing that I've tried that I've been doing recently, not so much for the novel, but for short fiction is I'll scribble out longhand and then I'll get up from where I'm sitting. And instead of sitting down at the computer to, to, to type it, I will talk it into an email, send that to myself and then edit that, paste it into a Word doc and then edit that. One, because as I'm reading it, I'm making corrections on the written copy. And so that I think has changed my process in, in more recent projects. Um, and it's a strategy I, I try to use with my students as well. Like try this, try these different strategies. I think too often they sit down at the screen and they're like, oh, I don't know what to write. So, yeah, no, yeah. And I, I can totally relate to um, the just like freehand writing on paper. Uh, and that's something I've just kind of really started getting into because for me, um, literally like growing up with computers and mm -hmm. that, that just kind of seeming as like the way to write. But it's definitely like a really useful tool, especially during kind of more of like the brainstorming, like very rough <laughs> drafting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I can totally relate to that. Um, and I don't know, like the method that you were just describing of like, emailing it to yourself like that I don't like that's kind of genius I would never have like thought to do that Thanks. but it makes it makes so much sense um because that kind of goes with like some advice I've kind of seen where people will say um I think it's normally used with like dialogue or something like that where it's like say mm -hmm. it out loud and then like as mm -hmm. you're reading stuff out loud then you'll catch it but then you're just taking it the next step forward of like you have it written down again and it's like I I don't know. Um, learning a lot already, and we're only on <laughs> the fourth. Well, question. I am a teacher who writes, so exactly. So <laughs> uh, that will happen. Um, and my next question, somewhat um, ac accidentally, almost kind of touches upon that. Um, it's a multi-parter. Um, what is the best writing advice that you've ever received? And the second part of this, I normally um, phrase it a little bit differently, but because you are a teacher, I'm going to uh, adjust kind of accordingly. What advice would you give to like your younger self as you're starting off on your writing journey or to new writers that you wish you knew? So it's funny because I, I just had this conversation with some graduate students. Um, and so the writing advice, it wasn't like someone gave it to me, but I was mm -hmm. using, um, oh man, I'm going to forget the title right now. But it's a book by Matt Bell. And I think that's where I saw this advice. It could be. I've been reading a lot about revision lately. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the suggestions that was made is that 
when you get to where you think this is getting close to done, that you put it in a different form. So I do a variety of things um, for revision. And one of them is after I've gone through the, you know, the, and edited the Word document, I will print out pages. Sorry for all the trees that I have destroyed, but I have to, like, I can't see mm -hmm. the same things on the screen that I can on the page. So that's always been part of my process to edit on the written page. It's also really helpful for me when I, helpful for me when I'm trying to rearrange things and trying to work on um, sequencing of the of the story or the novel. Um, but what I did most recently is after I thought, okay, I have the whole, I've gone through the written notes and I've made it a revision. The suggestion that I'm pretty sure it came from Bell's book, um, it was to put it in a different form, like a PDF and read it on a on a digital device. And I don't read on a uh, Kindle or I read actual physical hard copies of books. I've tried listening to audiobooks, but I don't have good auditory processing. Like I have to constantly take notes unless I'm just reading for pleasure. But I'm just, if you tell me later what happened in that book, I'm going to be like, there's a person, some stuff. But because I don't process auditorily very well. So I um, finished this revision of the next book and I saved it as a PDF and I put it on my iPad and I actually was able to spend the six hour flight home, five and a half hour flight home. And I read everything out loud. Like what you said earlier, not just dialogue. I read every single page out loud. It's the recommendation I give my students for any of their writing, whether it's academic writing, creative writing, not only when I'm helping students with their college application essays, I'm like, read it to me. And because I don't process well, I'll take some notes. But what happens more often than not is that they hear what doesn't sound mm -hmm. right. Oh, wait, I already said that. Wait, that word doesn't sound right. And I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> there's a method to the crazy ladies process. So I would say that's kind of a combination of the advice I got was to put it in that different form, which I had given as advice, but not the same exact thing. Like but yeah. to put it on a device to be able to make digital notes. Man, the first 45 pages that I had already sent to an editor, like here, these 45 are polished. Look at these and tell me if you want to see more. Oh my gosh, I found so many ways that I could tighten it and re like phrases that were out of order. Like, wait, this sequence doesn't make sense. And mm -hmm. again, it becomes a better book by doing that read aloud on the um, PDF digitally and making notes on that. Um, but I also tell students, I was talking to grad students and one of them asked me like about writer's block. And I said, there's no such thing. And there's like a collective gasp. And I'm like, look, if you think of it as a block, then yes, it will be in your way. But if you just think of it as an obstacle that you can get over or around or through, then it's not going to impede your process because there are strategies that you can use to not have a writer's block. You can move to a different location. If you're sitting at a desk and a laptop, get up, get a piece of paper, get a pen, get some crayons, get line paper, get printer paper, go outside, take a walk, talk out what you're trying to figure out. The block only exists because you let it. Mm -hmm. If you try these other strategies or work on a different project and then come back to the one where you were stuck, because then you can get over it, around it, or through it. And it's no longer a block. It's just an obstacle for you to overcome. And if you practice those strategies, then you can overcome those obstacles.
I don't know. Like I, again, as we were saying, I've heard uh, iterations of that advice, but again, I've never heard it like all kind of compounded together <laughs> like that. And it makes so much sense. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I think I will definitely um, apply some of that to my academic writing because I never really considered to do that to my academic writing before. I've only ever thought of that kind of stuff in like a creative lens. Um, but again, that just makes so much sense. Um, so I appreciate the advice. Um, all right. So my next question, uh, again, a little bit about you. I'm wondering, uh, as we learned, you've always wanted a PhD, but have you always wanted to be a writer? Uh, was that just kind of something that has happened throughout your life? Um, and I don't know, just if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of your journey with writing. So I've always been a storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, from a very young age, I would talk out loud to what were then my imaginary friends, Mochi and Kirby, and I would tell stories. Um, my abuelo passed away when I was like two or three years old, and apparently I still told stories about the things that we did, even though he was no longer with us. Mm -hmm. um, but I come from storytellers. My grandma and grandpa used to take... Um, when they would go out into the desert, they would take uh, photos on slides and they would put mm. them in one of those slide carousels. And we would come back, you know, whenever the family would get together, there would be a storytelling with this slideshow on the, on the family room wall or living room wall. Um, my mom, my Nina and my tias, they would get together. Usually we were either in the kitchen or they'd sneak into the back bedroom. I remember so my tia used to have a round bed, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And they would just all be back there just telling stories. And I was, um, we say in Spanish, metiche, like I was really nosy and I wanted to hear the stories. And so I grew up on both sides of my family hearing stories. And so um, I tell my students, the reason I write fiction is because I don't have a great memory and I'm a really good liar, but I will tell you when I'm lying. I'll say something and be like, wait, I might've made that up. I don't know if that really happened because I have been telling these stories all my life. And so I don't know, um, my mom found a story that I wrote, must've been in third grade. If I remember correctly, I was in third grade and it was like, you know, written on elementary school paper, the one that has like, like it's brownish, it has mm -hmm. lines like in pink and blue. And, um, and when I shared that story, one of my friends pulled out a quote and she's like, you had to call your girls. I was like, so really nothing's changed since I was like eight years old. Right. So I've been telling these stories. I think that's probably the first one I ever wrote. I got an A, even though it was about overthrowing the teacher. <laughs> so clearly my stories have always been about me and my girls and like standing up against what we perceived as injustice because we were not happy with our teacher in my story. So as I... And I mean, I was always a reader, like in elementary school, if I had to wait for my mom to pick me up, I would walk to the public library. We, we grew up in a really small town, so I could walk to the public library um, and I would just sit on the floor in the children's section, which, by the way, is looks exactly the same now, you know, 40 plus years later. My sister and I went in and I was like, I'm going to sit right here and read all these Nancy Drews real quick. So it's the same kind of thing, right? Like I, I was a reader and I think that's important if you're a writer. And it wasn't until I, but I didn't like English in high school for a lot of reasons. 
Um, and I thought I was going to study math and computer science when I went to UCLA. And that didn't work out. I ended up changing my major to sociology. And then I added communication studies where I took a writing class, writing for journalism. And I wrote for the, for La Gente de Aslan, the student news magazine. And I did that. But then I was in a Chicano literature class. It was called the Chicano Experience in Literature. And professor said, Mija, your academic writing's okay, but have you ever thought about writing fiction? And that may not have been her exact words. And maybe her intent was, hey, you're a good storyteller. But I took that to heart. And I agreed to do a labor exchange with um, the Wings Alas Latina Writers Workshop. Um, the writers, the writer that I took the workshop with, uh, Terry de la Pena, we're still friends to this day. And this was like almost 30 years ago. And um, her class was called Confessions of an Evening Novelist. So I very recently wrote a column and I titled it Confessions of a Weekend Novelist because I don't write necessarily every day. Um, but I did that workshop with her. But I'm, I'm from rural working class people and being a writer isn't very practical, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a job, at least in my, this is in my head, right? In my, it yeah. doesn't matter that I have a college degree and that I know things differently. In my mind, that's just something you kind of do on the side. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I finished undergrad, I went and did a master, some master's level classes in English and wanted to do some more writing and ended up getting a teaching credential. And so I taught high school Monday through Friday and I wrote on weekends and spring break and summer. And I did, that's how I wrote my first novel, which hasn't been published yet. I wrote a lot of Breaking Pattern, but I was always taking classes. Like once I got like this idea that I could write stories, I took classes at UCLA Extension. And so in this current semester, I am not teaching. Um, I had adjunct positions last semester and I just decided, you know what? There's an editor interested in my next book. I really want to focus on doing this. I had saved up some money from first semester. I was like, I'm going to try and make a go of this for this semester. But I am a teacher at heart. And I see my life moving forward as a teacher who writes. Um, I just so happens to be right now. I am teaching classes here and there. Like I do workshops at um, the Literary Arts Center in Venice. And I travel four hours to the town where I went to high school. And I teach a narrative writing workshop for Escuela de la Raza Unida. Um, and like, I'll do workshops here and there. But right now, my primary focus is finishing this revision so I can get it out in the next couple of weeks. And then finishing the other. I have a lot of projects in progress. Mm -hmm. And so I want to like get while I'm not teaching and I have the whole day just to work on these projects, I want to do that. But the reality is it, it's it's just not realistic for me to make a living as a writer. Um, I'm my only source of income and I like living alone. I like having my independence. And so it makes sense for me to find that balance with teaching. So hopefully I will find a faculty position where I can teach part of the time and write part of the time and still do community workshops because I enjoy doing that. So that's the plan for my future. I love that. Um, I come from uh, quite a family of teachers. Um, I have, you know, both, both my grandparents on my mother's side were teachers. And I'm like, 
a bunch of my cousins are currently working in um, the education system and stuff like that. And it's just, I don't know, it's just so important. So it always kind of like hits me at the heart when uh, talking about education um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know, just thank you for sharing um, your personal journey. I also always love hearing um, where, you know, where authors are coming from, because again, there's like literally no perfect way to be an author uh like literally everyone has their own journey or their like own spin like even if you know like all that kind of stuff um so I really really appreciate that um but yeah so before we transition into our um breaking pattern centric session section we are going to take a short break and we will be right back all right and we are back from our short little break um and now we are finally getting into breaking pattern itself um but first i wanted to start off with um my next question which is what was the journey of this book like from your first little like scraps of an idea um to the book that i have in my hand here and kind of adding a little bit of like compounded onto that question um for you kind of like what is your goal for this book and what did you set out to do um when it came to write this novel so this actually started as a short story in my last residency at antioch um, university when i was doing my mfa so i went to a low residency program so we have 10 days of classes in june and december and in between we work independently with a mentor guiding us through the writing process and at each residency, you bring a piece to workshop, ideally the piece that you're maybe then going to work on during your next project period. So I had this short story about a girl. She was at a roping and this boy's trying to get her attention. And she's like, I don't have time for you. I've got these horses to worry about. And one of my now longtime friends really loved the story. And whenever she's in the audience, I always call her out. I'm like, and then she nagged me and nagged me and nagged me about this should be a YA novel. This should be a YA novel. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll write a YA novel. Um, so thankfully, she did um, bug me until uh, it became a book. But to write that book, um, I came to Los Angeles at 17. And for listeners who don't know, boarding horses in Los Angeles is very expensive. And I was a college student on scholarship. And I had other priorities and it wasn't shoveling manure before I got up to go, you know, before I got out of the mm -hmm. house to go to school, which is what I did growing up. Like we lived in a rural area, horses along with sheep and pigs and steers and other animals had to be fed and you have to clean up after them. And it's a lot of work. So I hadn't done that in a really long time. And I really wasn't sure at that point in my writing career, like, could I really do this or how would I do this? So I had a number of strategies. The thing about my work, and this is not true for all writers, and I know this, I know writers who are like, it's solitary, it's all me, I do it by myself. That's not me. I am very much about embracing the community and relying on the support of all my communities. And so when I started working on this novel, I went to some family friends. They had old beta tapes and VHS tapes of rodeos recorded. And so I don't know, I, I imagine in your world, as is in mine, not too many people still have VHS 
players. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and there are people who don't even know what beta tapes are. So I took them to Costco and got them put on CD and they made two at a time. So I got one and they got people that had the videos. I gave them back their videos with the DVD. So now we could all watch them again. Well, I was very fortunate in that I took a digital pedagogies class, digital argument class um, as a grad student. And the professor was like, well, let's take that CD and let's digitize it. And then you can use clips and put them on your website. And I was like, so for a while, clips of those videos lived on my website. Um, and they were the clips of me doing rodeo events, pole bending, barrel racing and calf breakaway roping. I did not find, I think the um, goat tying event was on the other one. And because so much time had passed, like the, the tapes are damaged. So as a result, the DVDs, like one of them's really, really red and it drags, but that's just because over time, those tapes didn't really survive very well. Mm -hmm. So, but I was able to um, salvage enough to like, kind of get back into that world. I read a lot of horse books, like to see what else is out there. Um, It's so when you're, when you're sending your book out, you have to have what are called comp titles, like comparable books like your own to say, Hey, look, Mm -hmm. there's a market for these. Um, And then I went to junior rodeos in Riverside and I sat in the stands and I was kind of watching the rodeo, but I was mostly there to listen and to smell and to feel and to just be in that experience again. Um, I always tell my students that one of the best ways to write is to be able to put yourself in the body of your character. Our sense that we use the most is what we can see. And for most young writers, writing everything they see is about all they do. But if you really want that world to come to life, you have to have smells and you have to have sounds and and textures and the Mm -hmm. emotions that go with it. So I'm eavesdropping on conversations. I'm watching the barefoot child in a diaper walk by and I'm like, really, that still happens. And so it's just like being in that world again and watching how people carry themselves and how they, these teenagers talk to each other. Now I will say this, I have a distinct advantage when writing YA because as a high school teacher, I hear teenagers talk all the time. And just because their slang words might be different, they might be on their phones now, teenagers are still teenagers just like they were Mm -hmm. in the 1980s. And that's when the book takes place in the mid 1980s. And so really my students are also part of that community that helped this come to life because I, I always tell people that the voices in my head, you know, those ones that I used to think that I used to like, just talk to, um, they're, they're like 14, 15, 16 years old. Like I'm not my same age in my brain. Like those voices Mm -hmm. are still my teenage voices. And so I think all of that kind of came together to create this book and I have to say it was it wasn't ready to go out when I sent it there Mm -hmm. were some holes there were some flaws and I am so grateful to the readers at Inlandia Books and I mean the book's published now so it's not like they can unpublish it I'm sure it's um okay to say this when the book was selected for publication there were some of the readers who were like no we don't want to publish. It's not ready to be published. And I asked for the notes and the publisher initially was like, well, and I was like, look, I have very thick skin, like literally and figuratively. I can take criticism. I've, I can handle it. 
And I was so grateful for the people who were like, this isn't working. And this part doesn't make sense. And what happened to this character who was so important in the first third of the mm -hmm. book and he just disappears. And I was like, ah, you're right. Because in my head, I knew where they all were and what they were doing, but it wasn't on the page. And those notes help that manuscript that I turned in become this published novel. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be this published novel if it wasn't for all of those communities along the way. I love that. Um, thank you uh, for again for sharing that part of your journey. Um, so my next question along similar lines, uh, I know you said that um, that you had been working on it as kind of a short story, but what was kind of your initial, I guess, reasoning behind wanting to tackle the equestrian world, especially kind of go back to the mm -hmm. 1980s? And how has your reign as a rodeo queen impacted your writing in the process? Because obviously this like the subject matter itself is very personal to you. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I think it came at a time when, um, like I said, I've lived in Los Angeles my whole adult life. But mm -hmm. there are times where I get restless here. Right. Um, this is my home. It's been my home for a while. But uh, Los Angeles is my home now. I've been here a very long time. But there are, and I don't know, maybe as you get older, nostalgia kind of sinks in. Um, I think I wrote the story initially just because I was like, I don't know, what else am I going to write about here? I'll write <laughs> about this girl and she's at a roping. And I'm mm -hmm. sure it also had to do with the fact that my sister and I were, <laughs> it's very possible. I don't know this to be actually factually. So I'm telling you right now, I could be making this up. <laughs> I'm, I bet if I could find the notebook where I started the story, I bet it's dated someday my sister and I were driving back to Blythe mm -hmm. and I saw something or heard something or maybe on our drive back from Blythe to Los Angeles and we passed something or we were talking, you know, reminiscing. And I was like, I want to write a story about that because that's how a lot of them come up like, oh, what are we talking about? Well, I'm going to write a story about that. And now at family functions, my Nina will tell people, hey, be careful. She's going to put you in a story. Don't be doing that. That's going to end up in one of her books. And so, um, and then one of my cousins, of course, is like, I better end up in the book. <laughs> so I think that at that time, I wasn't really thinking about, obviously, wasn't thinking about a whole novel about this world. But um, I've always said that even though I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time, my rural working class upbringing is still very much a part of who I am. Anyone who talks to me for an extended period of time, I don't present as, you know, someone with a PhD, someone who's faculty, someone like all these identifiers. Be, there's, there's people are like, there's just always something a little bit different. It's because um, I, I still have my roots in these mm -hmm. rural areas and it will always be a part of who I am no matter how much education I have no matter how much I live you know adjacent to the 405 freeway or the 10 freeway or the whatever freeway <laughs> right now I live very close to LAX um and so I being I was the rodeo queen when I was 17 years old that was so long ago mm -hmm. but it's I still have the belt buckles. I still have. Um, and I'm not a person who keeps things. They were in a bag in my parents' house and they ended up in a box that was in my sister's garage. 
She's like, you better come over and get this stuff before I throw it out. And I was like, I don't care. I don't even know what it is. Throw it out. And so she and I went to the box and we were like, oh my God, all these belt buckles. And it just so happened that it was right after Breaking Pattern um, had been, um, not after it had been published, but shortly after it had been picked up. And so she was like, oh my gosh, we're going to use these. We need these. Um, and so it just, it worked out. I don't, I don't know that being the rodeo queen has so much impacted the process of writing. But it's definitely part of who I am and how I move about the world. Mm -hmm. um, especially because there weren't any more rodeo queen competitions after me. 1989 was the last one. And and this is like also a plug for the future. Not that not that everyone has access to this, but there is um, now a historical museum, a small historical museum in the town where we went to high school. And there. Part of it includes all the old programs from the Rodeo Queen and Junior Rodeo Queen competitions. And I was there and one of the um, volunteers, he happens to be the, my friend's father-in-law. And he's like, we should have you come do an event at the museum for your book. And I was like, okay, but you know, people say things. Mm -hmm. and sure enough, early January, he calls me and he's like, hey, what about this day? What are some days you could come? And I was like, oh, we're really doing this? So on Saturday, February 24th, I'll be at the Historical Museum in Blythe. And we're, there's going to be a car show. There's going to be an art exhibit. And there will be me reading from my book. Um, so, it's, so it's not so much that being the rodeo queen is part of the process, but it's that small town connection and the people who came out and who love and me and support what I'm doing. They may not always understand what I'm doing. They'll be like, uh, this crazy person quit her job to go back to school. Even my niece, who's born and raised in Los Angeles, she's like, I thought you already went to college. What are you doing? I was like, I like it. I, it's also, it was a lot of time. And I think that having that time to revise was really helpful. So it kind of got off the topic of your question, but I feel like it's, my process is influenced by so many different things. That's just one yeah. of many um, that has contributed to it. No, yeah. Um, and I I appreciate it that it did end up getting off topic. Um, because that was like very informative. And that was kind of what I meant by the question anyway, of like, you know, obviously um it wasn't a direct domino effect that it was like being rodeo queen at 17 has made you write a novel, but it mm -hmm. definitely like, you know, it wouldn't exactly be the same without that element. Right. Um which I think is And there really is cool. a rodeo queen in the novel. She's just not the yeah. main character. Yeah. Um, so um, moving on to my next question. Uh, a lot of your work is short fiction or, you know, like short creative nonfiction. Um, why did you decide to like kind of write a novel or like that this would be um, the time? Uh, I know you mentioned that there was like a first novel that uh, was not published. So um I guess the parameters of the question are kind of different now, but um, just kind of like, I guess, why now, if that makes sense? <laughs> so I actually started in that, that, the workshop that I mentioned, Confessions mm -hmm. of an Evening Novelist. So I started, I guess, if you could say, as a novelist, I started mm -hmm. in this long form fiction and then I had a really hard time. Um, once I, I set that aside, it just made more sense to work on shorter things. There was a sense yeah. of accomplishment. Um, and I think it's funny because I started with the book 
and then the audience can't see me with my arms out wide and then moving them narrower. But I started with this book and then I tried to write stories and where I ended up landing in fiction for a long time before I ever went back to any of the novels was flash fiction. Mm -hmm. And for two reasons, one, I'm busy, like teaching high school full time. And then my family is here. So doing things with my family. I also helped raise my brother and my nephew and making sure they got through high school. And so all of the things that I had to do, it made more sense to work in these shorter forms because I had a greater sense of accomplishment. I had work once I joined women who submit in 2012, 2011, 2012, you think I should know our origin date. Um, Don't let my uh, friend hear this. Uh, Mm -hmm. Her director hears it. She's going to be like, what? How do you not know? It's not emblazoned in my brain. When I started with Women Who Submit, well, we're an organization that empowers women identifying mm-hmm. in non-binary writers to send their work out to, for publication. You have to have something to send out for publication and it can't always be a novel. And yeah. so having these short pieces of fiction to send out made more sense for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, like I said, when the friend was like, this needs to be a YA novel. And I was more experienced. I think I had to go back to the short form to really understand character arc and dramatic arc and how to develop character and story simultaneously while building this world before the novel could become this novel as well as the one that I've gone back to that first one to work on it. So that's kind of how that, um, and I have to be honest, I don't write nonfiction very often. Um, the first nonfiction I ever had published is called sleeping in on Sunday. And it was the first time my mom was like, um, don't let people read that because before, whenever she Mm -hmm. would say like, I didn't, I never said that. I'm like, mommy, of course you didn't. It's not you. It's fiction. You're not, it's not you. You're not the mom. The character's not me. But when that essay came out, she was indignant. Like people cannot know that she gives M&Ms to her grandkids in church. So I also don't like writing about myself. And last, yeah. as I mentioned before, I don't have good memory skills. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my nonfiction is um, like I'll do book. I've done a book review. I've done some food writing, um, art reviews. But mostly, mostly um, I like to stick. I had a column recently, the confessions of an eve of a weekend novelist. Mostly I like to stick with making things up. It just works better yeah. for my brain. <laughs> no, that and that that completely makes sense. Um but yeah, so my next question, uh, back to the book itself. I love asking this question because I have gotten such a wide range of answers to the point where I genuinely I have no idea how you're going to answer it. Um, but if you were to somehow meet your protagonist, whether I guess you would go back to the 1980s or if, you know, are in modern day, just kind of out around. Um, If you were to meet your protagonist, do you think that you would get along with her? And what advice would you give her as she's going to go through kind of the journey of this book? So when I think about me going back in time, this is a little bit cheating because what I like to do with all my fiction is I go back, all three novels are historical mm-hmm. and it's very much about me going back and fixing what I didn't fix then. 
and yeah. responding in a different way that maybe is a more conscientious way that is a more um, just and, and kind. And so it's really, a so my, the world I've created is already me going back to that person. So I think, I think Adriana and I would get along if my current self was there, but mm -hmm. would she as, and my then self have gotten along? Probably not because I feel like she was a lot more outspoken than I would have been, but that's exactly why I created her. And I think about the other characters in my other novel too, that they're, they exist because they're able to do the things that I didn't. And looking back, I wish I would have. Mm -hmm. If she were to come here, she would probably be annoyed as hell with me because I go like 100 miles an hour all day, every day. And I just think about, like, she has one focus and it's her horses. And that's all yeah. she wants to do. And I don't know. I mean, I would, I think the advice I would give her is the advice that as the writer, I've already kind of tried to infusion her is like, be true to yourself. Like, don't let, the way the world exists right now, change the kind of person that you are and the kind of person that you want to be. And I think mm -hmm. Adriana, as well as the characters in my other novel, they're very much, it's about finding themselves and how they can move through the world in their most authentic way. And so I think she's already taking that advice. Well, because I made her, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that though. Um, you know, I, as I said, I really like asking that question because um, because kind of as what you were hitting on, um, there is always going to be a lot of the writer in the protagonist. And I guess it just kind of um, ends up being like, like what what elements the writer focuses on of like those uh, characteristics. But I love that. Um, so my next question um since as we've discussed, this book overall is very personal for you, but what is something that um, that you knew just like had to be included, whether it was like a specific place, uh, an event, a meal, but just something that's like deeply meaningful for you as the author to make sure like that it was included? So I think there's two things. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, it's not set where I went to high school. Yeah. And a lot of that is because I didn't ever want, and, and when I started this, you know, baby writer, I didn't ever want someone who I competed with to be like, oh my God, I never said that, right? Like my mom would mm -hmm. do. So I said it, um, the setting was important to me because it's set off of Pedley Road, off the 60 freeway on Pedley Road. And that's where my tia lives. And I spent a lot of time in high school at my tia's and I wasn't, writing as much then r-i-d-i-n-g not w-r-i-t-i-n-g mm -hmm. i wasn't writing as much then because i was busy with high school stuff i was still yeah. raising animals for 4-h but um until the rodeo queen competition i didn't ride much in high school mm -hmm. um, but i spent a lot of time there because that um that's like the hub of riverside county 4-h and i was doing leadership activities and i was doing all the things i needed to do to get to college yeah and so that setting is important to me and the geography of that place and so how wonderful that in Landia Books, the that's uh uh that is in Riverside, that that's who published this novel. But the event that's here, and clever your ears if you don't want any spoilers, come on, it's gonna be a slight hint at a spoiler. Um 
the event that I knew had to be in here is when I broke my fingers um, mm. in a rodeo. And so I, I knew that had, that's probably, I mean, there's a lot of things that are obviously based on my own experience, but that event, that very real moment of brokenness. Yeah. And then, you know, we've got the title breaking pattern, which for mm-hmm. those of you not familiar with rodeo, breaking pattern means you don't follow the path that you're supposed to and you're disqualified. But Adriana is also breaking gender patterns and patterns of sexuality and social class and race. And the book itself, because most Westerns, most cowboy books are, most horse books are either elite equestrian East Coast or they're Mm -hmm. like open range, Montana, Wyoming, and they're all predominantly white Mm -hmm. and upper class. Like we're talking about kids who are piecing together lives with part-time jobs and helping out here and exchanging, you know, bartering for this and that in order to make a life you know, Adriana's trying to make this rodeo life work and she's up against people with professionally trained horses. And so that part of my experience and my sister's experience and my family's experience was really important to me to convey. Again, factually, like fact by fact, they're not the same, but that idea of we were in a world where a lot of people were very moneyed and we were not. We Mm -hmm. weren't poor. Yeah. But my parents made a lot of sacrifices so my sister and I could compete in junior rodeo. We didn't know that at the time. We didn't understand that. This is something I only came to consciousness about after the fact. So that idea, breaking those kinds of patterns was also something I wanted to include. So it really was three answers, sorry. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Um, and that is also part of the reason I have the question phrased like that to just kind of see like, what can it um, spark and inspire? Um, but I really like that. Um, so I only have a couple more questions for you today. Uh, and the first of which, as we're getting into our closing section, is what do you most want prospective readers to know about your book? And what are some kind of uh, closing words or sentiments that you want to leave listeners with today? So I think what I just said about the themes of Breaking Pattern, I think that's mm-hmm. really important. And I also think that... Um, I wouldn't have known this until the book was published and I started getting feedback from adult readers, right? It's a young adult novel. It's written, the characters are teenagers, but there have been so many adults who have shared with me their own rural experience, like visiting a grandparent or visiting a cousin and their own rural experiences. And so I feel like while I went out into the world thinking, oh, there might be some high school kids in Southern California who might like this, I feel like the novel really has, and this isn't me saying this, this is from hearing people's responses. It has a much broader appeal Mm -hmm. um, that the characters I've been told are interesting, all of them, not just the main character and um, that it it does read pretty quickly. Um, I do read one of the chapters on, um, you can find it on my website uh, where there's actually, you know, one of the chapters, the September Junior Rodeo chapter, I read. Um, on, it's an online audio literary magazine, and the audiobook for people who maybe are more into audiobooks, the ebook and the audiobook, um, we're working on getting those out um, soon. So, awesome! And I will, you know, I'll include all of the different links to all of the all the things in the show notes below. Um, 
But yeah, so my two real closing questions, um, which I always like to ask at the end, the first of which is um, the show is called On the Shelf with Honora Quinn. So whenever I have an author on, I like to ask them, what's on your shelf? What are you reading these days? So, oh my gosh, the, there's the shelf and then there's the pile on the end table and then there's the <laughs> pile that sits in my bag. Mm -hmm. um, I just finished, um, because I was in Oahu for a job interview, I just finished the short story collection called This is Paradise and a poetry collection called Ask the Brindled. Um, I'm also reading, rereading to review Swachi uh, Julisa Bermejo's poetry collection called Incantations and Tony Ann Johnson's um, short story collection that won the Flannery O'Connor Prize, Tony Ann Johnson's short story collection called Light Skin Gone to Waste. So um, I have a lot of other books on my shelf and in my stack to read, but that's what I'm currently obsessing over those particular books. So. Awesome. Um all right. So my last question for you today and the little bit of the spiel that goes with it. Um, this is our shop small corner, which I always like to have at the end. Um, a little a little section of time where you can um for you to highlight where people can like find and support you, first of all. But at the same time, check out an indie bookstore near and dear to your heart. Um, because Way back when in 2020, we were originated by a local indie bookstore. So I always love to just kind of spread the love around a little bit more and learn about a new bookstore. Well, that's great. I really appreciate that. Um, one of my commitments when Breaking Pattern was published is that we would um, sell out of independent bookstores. And so um, my publisher, you can pick up the book um, in Landia's uh, books. But I also want to uh, give a shout out to Sarah Rafael Garcia and Libromobile. She has been um, a supporter of local writers and um, women who submit our organization uh, and the anthologies that we have published with Jammy Publishing are all featured on the Libromobile website. So you can find a lot of great authors in accolades and gathering and our newest anthology called transformation um so um libra mobile bookshop i highly recommend ordering your books there awesome um and libra mobile will now be added to my map of independent booksellers that is of course going to be Thank linked you. in the show notes like it is um uh, for every episode um i love to learn about new bookstores and i will include purchase links through Libromobile as well as a couple of my local indies that I always love to shout out um but yeah so that is all I have for you today Tisha thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me I've really enjoyed the conversation that we've had um I don't know and I just really appreciate it so thank you thank you I appreciate you getting the book and uh giving me this opportunity to talk about it take of care of course have a good one Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. If you did enjoy it, I hope maybe you'll take a moment or two of your time to rate us on whatever podcasting platform you listen on so even more people can find On the Shelf and maybe find their new 
favorite book. We will be back next week with another author interview, and I hope to see you there. Um, as mentioned, all of the links where you can find Tisha, where you can find On the Shelf, as well as where you can purchase Breaking Pattern, including through Libro Mobile, um, Quail Ridge, Odyssey, all that good stuff is going to be down in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Honora Quinn, and this is On the Shelf. <laughs>